So we're in Colossians still, and, uh, and Adam did a fantastic job last week of getting us through uh, the first part of Colossians 2. We went through 8, verse 8 through 15 last week, and uh, essentially what, what that, that whole section talks about is the error of having a false philosophy of life. And, uh, and Adam talked about how the, there's two leading philosophies that are not, not the gospel that our world tends to be steered by, and that's hedonism and, uh, and legalism. Hedonism is just, you know, do what feels good, basically worship of self and worship of making yourself feel pleasure and, uh, of any variety. And legalism is thinking that by following the rules you will gain a good standing with God. And what Paul's instructing the church in Colossia through is that both of those are, it's just an error of judgment to think through that if you have a false philosophy of life, that it won't lead you anywhere. It's a dead-end street. And he justifies that warning by reminding the church in Colossia and through them, us, that the full deity of Jesus is what justifies that warning. That Jesus is alive, Jesus is the Son of God, He, he walked through real humanity, and, and He was completely adequate to be the, to be the uh, sacrifice for our sins. And so that's where things went last week, where we just talked about the error of having a false philosophy of life. And this week, we're going to look at uh, a different error that Paul reminds us of. Now, I had PowerPoint made, but uh, in my uh, tech guru-ness, I saved it. And when I saved it, I, I just basically saved the old one over top of the new one, and I don't have any slides for you this morning. So, unless you want to look at last week's slides, I mean two weeks ago's slides, I could show this to you, but it would be utterly confusing. So, uh, we're just going to have to roll without them today i got to get better at my tech savviness. So we're going to look at three things here that Paul reminds us of through this. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 16 through 23. If you're using the Bible in front of you or in that pouch in the chair in front of you, it's page 679. By the way, I want to remind you again, if you, uh, if you need a Bible, take that one. If you like that one uh, better than the one you've got, take it. Uh, that is a, that's the version of Scripture that we use. It's called the English Standard Version, and it is the most literal translation we have available to us in our day and age that gets us to the original language of Greek and Hebrew. So it's the most literal we've got. It's the closest thing we've got in English to what the original language would have said. Um, so that's, that's why we use that one here. Uh, but we're going to be in verses 16 through 23 of Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at what Paul, Paul, learn, Paul warns against the error of legalism, the, the error of angel worship, and the error of asceticism, which you might not know what that word completely means. Asceticism is what Paul is saying. It's the doctrine that a person can attain a high spiritual or moral state by practicing self-denial or self-mortification or anything along those lines. It's the thought that you can gain yourself to a higher plane in a spiritual sense through following rules or through self-mortification or just idol worship. It's, it's thinking that you can find a holy level of life through earthly living, essentially. So anytime I refer to that word asceticism, that's what I'm referring to. 
But let's read this together. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And let me stop there. The first word of, chapter, of verse 16 is therefore. And when we see the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what's it there for, right? So it's there because of what we talked about last week. The air of a false philosophy, it's reminding us that Jesus was fully man and He was fully God. He was fully sufficient to be the sacrifice. It's, it's taking us back to the very beginning of the letter to talk about the supremacy of Jesus, that Jesus is King. And so having that knowledge... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So let's break down what Paul's saying in this section. We're going to spend our time together just breaking this down because I think it's really important for us to take this section and make it make sense because what Paul's talking against is the same stuff that I think if Paul were to write a letter to the church in America, he would address this kind of stuff in this letter. He would address self-worship. He would address legalism. He would address those things. So the first thing that I think we need to understand, and Paul addresses this in 16 through 19, is that legalism and grace don't swim in the same pool. They don't mix. Legalism and grace don't mix. Legalism says that you have to do something to gain something. That's the math. That it's due to be theology. You do this to be holy. You do this to become righteous. You, you check off the list. You do the do's, don't do the don'ts. That's what legalism says, that you gain some higher moral standing by following the list of rules. And if you're a good rule follower, then you're obviously a godly person. But that math doesn't always equal to the right equation. Just because someone is moral, Jesus himself said, all of those who say, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In the great, great story uh, pilgrim's progress. There is a section in the story where Christian is a pilgrim and he's going to take a pilgrimage to the celestial city. And along the way, he meets all kinds of people, people that are helping him and people that are trying to hurt him. He's going to meet situations that slow him down and situations that can speed him up. But one of the things that's crucial in this is he was told by people that came before him, that on this pilgrimage you will get to a hill, and on the top of that hill will be a cross. There will be paths on either side of it. But to get into the celestial city, you have to climb the hill. You have to go through the cross. 
You can't get into the celestial city unless you go through the cross. So Christian climbs the hill. And as he starts this journey, he has a huge satchel on his back, just full of what it's called his burden. The closer he gets to the cross, the more the straps loosen. And when he gets to the base of the cross, his burden falls off of his back. And when he looks back to see what happened to it, it's gone. Now, there are those that were with him that tried to talk him into not climbing the hill because it's easier to take the path around it. And they did. They took the path around the hill because it was a whole lot easier to go around the hill than to go up over it and through the cross. And those same people went on the same pilgrimage he did from that point on. They went through some of the same trials. They met some of the same people. And some of them chose very wisely. They didn't listen to the temptation, and they didn't quit, and they kept fighting the good fight, right? But when Christian gets to the celestial city, he gets invited in because his name is found in the book of life. But when the people who didn't go through the cross get to the pearly gates of the celestial city, they are not allowed to enter. Good moral living does not equal eternal security. Being a good rule follower, a generous person, a nice person does not equal heaven. That's what we like to think in our country. We like to think that if somebody dies, first of all, when somebody dies, we only say nice things about them. And that's when we say, well, they're in a better place now. But that's not always true. They could be in a much worse place. And what Paul is trying to remind the church in Colossae is that it's not about following the rules. The rules were established in the Old Testament to reveal your brokenness, not to give you a solution to it. The rules and the laws were established to point you towards a Savior. It was to remind you that you're not capable of following all the rules. And and you have to be capable of following all the rules to get holy standing, or someone has to step in front and take the punishment for you on your behalf for you to be a recipient of the blessing. And the only person that can do that is someone who did follow all the rules. So the whole Old Testament is proof that we're a mess. And yet people are still stepping in to the churches, to the established, gospel-centered striving to be like Jesus' churches and saying, no, 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 you guys, you're missing it. I know it's Jesus. Yes, 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 of course it's Jesus, of course. But you also have to be nice people and follow all the rules. And if you don't, give X amount of dollars every week in the offering plate. God won't bless you. And if you don't follow all the rules and are nice to people, then you won't get God's love. That's how this works. It's conditional upon your obedience. But obedience doesn't gain you favor with God. Obedience is the result of being a recipient of God's favor already. And if you're obeying to gain, that's not real obedience, is it? It's it's parenting 101 is what I'm figuring out. I'm no expert at parenting. But I'm figuring out that there's, there seems to be a difference at times. And I look back on my own life, and I, I still do it. At a, at a, at a, at just, I'm almost 38 years old, and I still do this. If I know what carrot is dangling in front of my face, I'm more prone to obey. I'm more prone to do what's necessary, right? But if I don't know there's even a carrot there, obedience can be tough because what do I get from all of this? But obedience is the purest form of love. 
It's, it communicates trust. It communicates love. So obedience doesn't gain you favor with a holy God. Following the rules does not gain you favor with a holy God. It's the result. It's, it's the outward display of you already receiving His favor. You find yourself, because you know how insanely amount God loves you, you find yourself desiring to obey Him because you've understood what He gave you. You understand at the level which He loves you. So obedience isn't to gain His favor. It's a response that from already receiving it. So legalism and grace don't mix. Legalism says you have to do this and do this and do this to gain God's righteousness, but grace says, no, 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 you already got God's righteousness and you didn't deserve it. You're right, and you never will, but I'm going to give it to you anyway because that's how much I love you. So you receive this gift, and the receiving of the gift alters how you want to live your life. Not because you're trying to gain something from Him, because you've already gotten it. The second thing that I think we need to cover that Paul talks about here, the first thing, legalism and grace don't mix. We could talk about that one thing the rest of the time we're together today. But the second thing is that angels are created beings. They have no deity. This thought that the Looney Tunes version of, of death is accurate, that you know we get crushed by an anvil on the top of our head, in pursuit of the roadrunner, and then all of a sudden we grow wings and float up into the sky and play a harp sitting on a, sitting on a cloud, right? How many times has someone passed away and you've heard somebody say, well, they're an angel now, right? That's impossible. Because angels are created beings. God created angels at the same time that He created, around the same time He created people. Listen to what God says. When Job is going through all this suffering in the book of Job, and, and he's, he's going through all this stuff, Job finally speaks at the end. He's gone through all of this trauma, all of this pain, all of this loss, and he finally speaks. And when he speaks, he just asks God a series of questions. And you can sense his frustration in his questioning. And then God speaks. The end of the book of Job, we see God speak. But when God speaks back to Job, he doesn't answer one of his questions. He doesn't answer any of them. This is what God does. He listens to Job send all these questions. And he says, okay, Job, I heard you. Now let me ask you a few questions. And here's one of the things that he says in Job 38. This is verses 4 and 7. I'm going to read them together. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you have understanding. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, where were you, Job? He says that because I want you to hear that. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, where were you? When, when there's a referral to that the sons of God or the morning stars, we see that several times in the book of Job and other places in the Old Testament, it's referring back to angelic beings. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. Thank you, Don. The heavens and the earth. 
In the beginning, we had one entity. Before time actually started to tick, we had one entity, and it was God. But then He created the heavens and the earth. So we do not become angels, and we do not worship them. They have no deity. The angels did not save us. The angels had no part in it. The angels are created beings with specific purpose. And to be honest with you, there's not a whole overload of information in the Scripture on what the angelic purposes are. We have way more to tell us about ourselves. So here's what I take from that. God obviously wanted us to focus in on how we're to live our lives and who we are to worship more than He wanted us to know about the angels. If He wanted us to know all the intricate details of how angels operate, He would have given it to us. So let's not focus in on a secondary issue that doesn't lead us to salvation. Let's not say, well, God didn't tell me that. Well, yeah, He didn't tell you that, and you are under no right to have to receive it. You're taking the place of Job in that moment where you're demanding answers from an an all-powerful God, and in that moment, that that all-powerful God's not going to answer your questions necessarily. He might just hammer you with some questions. Now, Job's response, just a a little sub-note, Job's response to these questions is basically laying on the floor saying, I I can't take it anymore. Stop. And the beauty of the story of the book of Job isn't that he got all his stuff back, which he did in multitude. It's that at the end of the story, this man who already knew God knew him better. That suffering and pain and loss led him to understand who God was better. But the point I'm trying to make here is that angels are created beings. They have no deity. And the proof of that is how when God does ask a question of Job, he says, where were you when the angelic hosts sang praises to me? Where were you? Where were you when all the sons of God shouted for joy? So we don't worship angelic beings, and Paul reminds us that it's actually kind of foolish. It's secondary. It's taking your eyes. Satan is a master at distracting us. We focus in on the wrong things. I don't know how many times I have seen a Sunday school class taught on uh, end times end times, uh, what it's going to look like in the end times. Now, I'm not saying it's a waste of time, but I am saying that that usually just turns into a gathering of people my parents' age having conspiracy theories. Usually what it turns into is a bunch of people trying to figure out whether the flames that come out of the dragon's mouth are actually tomahawk missiles or not. It just turns into this like trying to figure out what's there when it's not there for us to figure out. So here's what we do know. Angelic beings were created just like we were for a specific purpose that God had in mind, and they are doing that purpose. They are living out that purpose. There is no deity there. There is nothing about an angel that can save us, and we do not become angels. They are separate from us. They experience a life that we won't experience this side of eternity, and we experience a life and are recipients of things from God that they will never, be experience, they will never experience and be recipients of. Angels don't know what it's like to receive the grace of God because they've never needed to be forgiven. We have experienced that. It's two separate things. They're not the same, and they are not worthy of worship. They might be worthy of curiosity, but they're not worthy of worship. 
That's what Paul's reminding us of. The last two things that Paul talks about here, the last three things, are, are where he really drills into this. In verse 20, in verse 20, Paul says this, If with Christ you died to the etern- elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? You have experienced, through the grace of God, you have the opportunity to experience uh, this amazing transferal where you get something from God that you don't deserve and that you could never earn. You get eternal standing. You receive that from God because Jesus paid for it for you. We've probably experienced something like this in very small ways. This is a tangible reminder of God's grace this week was I was going through the drive-thru at Starbucks. I had ordered a drink. I was, I was, I'm not going to admit to you what drink it was because it was a rather girly coffee drink, but uh, regardless... I had ordered it, and it was quite expensive for a coffee drink. I'm, not, I'm also not going to tell you how much it was. But it was shameful how expensive I realized a cup of coffee can be. And when I got up to the window, they said, it's the person in front of you paid for your coffee. I have no idea who they were. I have no idea why they paid for my coffee. But I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve that, did I? I didn't, I didn't speed up to find them and pull them over and be like, hey, uh, I'm glad you finally recognized how much you should have paid for my coffee. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a while. See you next week. No, it was just I was a recipient of somebody else's generosity. I didn't deserve it, and I didn't do anything to earn it. And it was just a small little tangible reminder of how much this amazing gift of grace is. And Christ's followers have died to the world. That's what Paul's reminding them of of here and us. Christ's followers have died to the world. When you receive Christ, your citizenship changes. I wish I would have understood this earlier in life because it's mind-blowingly awesome. I feel like I'm behind the eight ball because I'm still still wrestling with how, how awesome this is. But when you receive Christ, when you receive this amazing gift of atonement that Christ paid for on the cross, you no longer are a primary citizen of the world. You are a citizen of heaven living in foreign territory. You're an immigrant. You're a refugee. That's what you are. You are here temporarily on a temporary work visa from your king. That's what this is. And you have died to the world you came from or that you live in. You're you're not an American first. You are a Christ follower, a citizen of heaven first and foremost. Now, those terminology has been spit on in our culture lately. Immigrant, refugee. These are the people we treat like garbage in our society. These are the people that we have said, yeah, you can come here as long as you follow the rules. Right? Sounds kind of like the garbage that 
these people are trying to make Christians believe about following Jesus. Yeah, you can be a part of this as long as you fill out the right paperwork and follow the right rules, as long as you're from the right lineage or the right country. But if you're from a certain country or from a certain uh, religious belief, no, this is not available to you. Sorry. When we become followers of Jesus, we become citizens of heaven that are temporarily put here to do the work that he has already laid out before us. And Jesus warns us that when you receive this gift, you have died to yourself and your selfish desires have died. And by the way, people will hate you because of me. Jesus says to his disciples, look at what they did to me. Look at what they did to me. They beat me to the point where I was unrecognizable. They whipped me to the point where there was no skin left on my back and my spine was exposed because that's how much flesh they tore off with the beating. They jammed thorns down into my skull. They hung me on a cross and I suffocated to death. I didn't die of blood loss or pain. I died because I couldn't breathe. Look at what they did to me. Now, just so you're aware, disciples, that same world that did that to me, what I, what I did when I raised myself from the grave, it did not change the world's disdain for this message. It actually amped it up. They're going to hate you because of me. You're going to tell them they're wrong. You're going to tell them that I'm right. You're going to admit that you're wrong and that I'm right. You're going to live differently because of it. And when you do that, people will hate you. That's what Jesus says. So when you receive Christ, you die to the world and its desires. It is dead. And so what Paul's saying here is, why do you go back to death? Why do you go back to it? When I was a kid, I used to go to my friend Nick's house often. He lived on a farm uh, about 10 miles away from my parents. And I would spend countless days out there in the summer doing things that, like, uh, well, a lot of I probably shouldn't have done. But regardless, <laughs> we would ride four-wheelers all day, or we would ride horses into the woods, or we would go down to the reservoir behind his property, and we would fish, and we would camp out. And he had dogs on his property that his dad would raise, and he had uh, blue ticks, which are really good rabbit dogs. And so he would train them for rabbit hunting, and then he would sell them. And uh, this one dog in particular was not the brightest uh, not the brightest bulb on the tree. And he knew that because of this dog's lack of smarts, he wasn't going to be a top breeding dog or a dog he could sell. So they decided to keep him as a pet. But they docked his tail. They did it themselves. So he takes the tail. He docked the dog's tail. The dog comes awake and uh, is fine, you know, whatever. And he, Jeff had taken his dad, took the tail that he had cut off and buried it down below uh, the property. The next morning, Jeff got ready to leave for work, and the dog was laying on the deck chewing on something, and whenever he checked out what it was, the dog was chewing on his own tail like it was a bone. So Jeff was like, that's disgusting. So he took it, and he took it further away, and he buried it. And the next day, well, that day, when Jeff came home from work, guess what the dog was doing on the deck? Chewing on that tail. And finally, he had to burn it to, to get rid of it so the dog wouldn't keep chewing on it. And I think of that when I think of messages like this, when I think of, of this passage of Scripture, what Paul's trying to warn us against. 
You have died to your, to your sinful desires. You have died to the flesh. You have died to the world. Think of it this way. Anytime that we, when we walk away from a gracious gift of God and the commands of God and the love of God, anytime we walk away from that to fuel our own selfish and sinful desires, it's like we're chewing on a piece of dead flesh that God cut off of our body. It's like we kept it in a jar and every once in a while we take it out and suck on it for a little bit. Isn't that gross? I want you to be sick right now. I, I want that to just sort of just make you sick to the stomach. Because when I think of it that way, it's disgusting. But anytime I run towards sin, that's exactly what I'm doing. Anytime I run towards a philosophy that I think can save me or give me joy or give me, give me any ounce of satisfaction apart from Jesus, that's exactly what I'm doing. So I am dead to the world and its transgressions. I am dead to it. And when we get when we get Jesus, we get covered in his righteousness. Do you understand how mind-blowing this is? That you, you and I, when we receive Jesus, we get covered in his righteousness. Now remember, the whole way back in Genesis chapter 3, these two people who sinned, God meets them in the garden. They're hiding from him. They're ashamed of themselves. And now they've realized that they're naked because shame has entered into society. And now they're already body-shaming themselves. So they go get some fig leaves and they hastily put together some stuff to cover up their private areas. And when God finds them in the garden, he sees them. They're, they're hiding from him, which I think is funny. Uh, God obviously finds them. And when he sees them, he tells them, listen, what you're wearing is not sufficient. He essentially tells them leaves, when they're not plugged into a water source, die. And when the leaf dies, you will be exposed <coughs> And because of this sin, there's going to be cycles to this whole earth thing. It's going to get pretty cold here, and you're going to want sufficient covering. So I will make you a sufficient covering. It's around Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, that Jesus, he, he, he slaughters an animal and gives them proper covering made out of animal skin. Whole way back at the fall, we have this little tiny hint that for us to be properly covered, properly covered and taken care of, and so that we're not fully exposed, for us to have that kind of sufficient covering, something had to die. Fast forward, Jesus dies on a cross, and when that happens, and we receive that grace, we are clothed in the same righteousness that Jesus has been clothed in since the beginning, since, since forever. So when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. When God looks at him, he says, you know who you remind me of? My son. Oh, you know who you look like? Jesus. That's what, God's, that's what Jesus' righteousness did for us. We got clothed in it. And that means that no matter what you do, that you can never earn more of God's love. And he can never love you less. You can't do anything to lose it. You can't do anything to gain more of it. It is God's love. It is a thing that cannot be capped. You have received it in its fullness. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. He writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a whole lot of theology right there. But basically what it says is that you once belonged to the world, and once you saw the redemptive message of Jesus, the hope that He offers, you receive it, you stepped out of that being your reality. You will still live here. You will still die here. There's only two people in history that haven't died here, Enoch and Elijah. And if you just walk off into heaven someday, kudos to you. Or if a a flaming chariot comes down and gets you like it did Elijah, that would be awesome for you. But I doubt that'll happen. So that means we will live here. We will suffer here. We will experience pain here. We will experience loss here. And we will die here. Unless Jesus comes to redeem us first which would be awesome in and of itself. But we can't bank on that. We need to live out the good works that have been laid before us because of Jesus' grace that was shown to us on the cross, because of God's grace that was poured out on us. You are dead to your sin, so why keep going back to it? Solomon writes in Proverbs, like a dog returns to his vomit. Let that sink in. So a fool returns to his folly. And when we return to the same sin that God died to redeem us from, we are like a dog that walks over to a pile of his own puke and licks it all up. I want you to be sick this morning. (laughs) Anyone want to come over for lunch? I, I do that on purpose because, man... I can't stress enough how gross sin is to God. Do you realize how heinous it is? It killed his son. It slaughtered his son. So bad, so ugly, that the only time in the span of history God could not look at his son. God had to separate himself from his son because that's how ugly sin is. It's so much worse than vomit or any other gross analogy I can make for you this morning. And you're dead to that. And Paul says, why, why, why? Why do you go back to it? Why do you run back to it? These rules, this referring to things that all perish as they're used. Why? Don't eat this, don't do this, don't do that, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. What kind of life is that? You get to live in the power of Jesus' resurrection. Why do you keep going back to the foolishness? 
Why do you revoke your own citizenship? Why do you want that? That's what Paul's saying. The next thing that he wants us to be reminded of is in the second part, of, uh, and it's, it, it's verse 22, where it says, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Why do you want to do that? He says, if with Christ you died, starting verse 20, to the elemental spirits of the world. Why? As if you were still alive in the world. You are dead to the world. Remember, you are alive in Christ. Your citizenship changed. Why do you submit to all the regulations? Now, Paul's not saying you're not supposed to submit to regulations and rules. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that if a religious community comes to you and says, yes, 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 it's Jesus, but it's Jesus and this. It's Jesus and following these rules. Anytime we do that, we tend to emphasize the rules more than we emphasize Jesus. That's why legalism is a broken philosophy. So Paul says, why? Why would you go back to it? Because he's referring to all the things that perish as they are being used. And all these things were written according to human wisdom and human teaching and human assumptions. All these things perish as they're used. We love to preserve things in America. We love it. I mean, heaven forbid somebody buys a piece of property and tears down an old building. That's certified historic. Yes, it's old. You're right. Right? My dad and my father-in-law are the two worst people at this. They keep everything. Everything will be worth something someday. I'm sorry, Dad, but my bicycle that my brother ran over with the car because he was mad at me is not going to be worth squat. It wasn't worth anything when I got it. It's not worth anything now. But it's still in the top of my dad's garage because someday... Someone's, someone's going to want that old Schwinn bike. Not old Schwinn is in like good Schwinn. I mean like China Schwinn. It's, it's, it's no good. It's not worth it. Plus, it's been run over by the car at least three times. My brother used to have an anger problem. Anyway, all the things that we, we try to preserve, all the things that we try to keep around, Do you know why we have to preserve them? Do we know why we have to put work into making sure they stand still? This is pretty easy. Because they're falling apart. Because it won't last. No matter what building material we pick, at some point it deteriorates. It outdates and it needs updates. Because the things that we build our lives on here on this earth, apart from Jesus, are things that are built out of things that perish and things that die. So Paul's saying all of these rules, don't touch it, don't eat it, don't do it, don't go here, all those things are built upon worldly principles in a world that will die. You already know this. Why do you keep doing this? Why would you give yourself over to that? And what Paul's hoping for is by asking these questions, people can read it and say, you know what, it is kind of stupid. These things wither away and they die. Like I said, we like to preserve things, but all the things that man can create have a shelf life. All the things that we can create have a deterioration point. So any kind of religious code or system that's built upon something that man cooked up won't stand the test of time. It will deteriorate. 
and it will fail. That's the origin of all of these ascetic rules. And then Paul says this. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Following the rules will not keep you from wanting to give over to your fleshly desires. Here's the only solution to that, the only thing that can help you stop sinful behavior is the Holy Spirit. And that's not something that anybody on earth ever cooked up. That is the ultimate solution to asceticism, and it reveals the ineffectiveness of rule following. Because you can follow rules, but you will still break them. Because it's cooked up by man. So here's what Paul's getting at. Here's what we need to wrestle with. What is the object of our worship? What what is the object of the things we hold most dear? What is the source of it? Now, we're in church, so we know what we're supposed to say. We're supposed to be like good little children and look up with a starry look in our eyes and say, God, right? But that's not what I'm asking for. I'm asking for the truth, and maybe that is the truth for you, and for that I say praise the Lord. But for most of us, it's probably not. Most of us are going to walk out this door and we're going to struggle with making sure that Jesus is the king of our lives. We're going, to, we're going to struggle with making sure we're striving to do the right things because we want to honor God with how we live our lives. With the decisions we make in our relationships, with the way we spend our money, with, the, with, with all of it. With the way we, we, we raise our kids, with the things we watch on TV, with the things we, uh, we do with our time, with the things we put into our body. And in those moments, we have to ask ourselves, what is the object of our worship? That's essentially what Paul's getting at. If you're the object of your worship day to day is not God, you will tend to find security in something that is not Him. Rule following is appealing to us because it has immediate results. If, if, if someone in authority says, do this and don't do this, and I do this, they will like me more. If I don't do this, they will like me less. We like rule following. Some of us say we don't, but we do. We like rules because there's tangible evidence of it. We know that if we do the do's and don't do the don'ts, we will gain favor with the people who expect us to do the do's and don't do the don'ts. And we know that if we do the things that are on the don't list the same people that wrote the rules will be upset with us. Right? So what Paul's asking is the heart issue here. What is the object of your affection? What is the object of your worship? Do you understand your eternal, your, your eternal citizenship? Because anything apart from Jesus, as far as a rule-following culture, is foolishness, and it leads to an end. Realizing who we are in Christ will deter us from any worship of things that really won't satisfy us. The great theologian Mick Jagger said it best when he said, I can't get no. What? 
Satisfaction. Good. You know that better than you know the word. Because when I ask you to finish a verse sometimes, you're just silent because you're afraid you're going to say the wrong thing. But you'll quote Rolling Stones lyrics like crazy. Good to know, people. Good to know. Here's my point, and I think it's Paul's point. This, this is a huge, a huge thing. Paul spends a lot of time addressing this in all of his letters. It's something that he continually takes people back to. It's something he continuously reminds us of. What is your hope built upon? And if you find yourself doing something good, why are you doing it? What's driving you to do it? And if the answer doesn't track back to the death, burial, and resurrection being the thing that you've devoted your life to because you can't imagine, you can't imagine a life without Jesus, well, then you're headed down the right path. And when you find yourself failing, if you hit your face and you say, God, I'm sorry, I need your grace again, and you wake up in the morning and say, I need your grace. I need it again. I need it again because I talked that way to this person and I was, I was foolish with this and I did this and I went here and I was unkind here. And you'll find, you'll find over time that the big things you did struggle with, maybe you won't struggle with them as much, but you'll just, you're a sinful being. So over time, you'll still struggle with sin and you'll have to keep running back to the cross. You'll have to keep going back to the cross and remembering what happened on it. Your sin was conquered on that cross. You don't have to live in it anymore. You don't have to carry it with you anymore because Jesus already took care of it. So anytime that we're tempted to go back to sin or go back to some kind of rule-following process to save us, we are like that dog chewing on our dead, rotting tail. Let that one stick to you because that's not living a life in the fullness of Christ, dead in our sins. That's, That's going back to dead in our sins. It's going back to a world that Jesus died to conquer for us. And you have it. So don't forsake it and don't don't pretend like you don't want it. If you're here today and you have Jesus, you have everything. You need nothing else. You need nothing else. You have everything. And out of God's grace, He will provide you with the things that you need to survive. Or He won't, and you'll die. But if you do, you'll be with him. I mean, this is a win-win, people. And it's crucial that we understand this. It's crucial that we take time to talk through it. You know, one thing that I'm going to close on this, one thing that I'm realizing is that in the book of Acts, the church function at the end of chapter 2 of the book of Acts, like verse 42 through 47, we see the church function at potentially the best it has ever functioned at. It says that they gathered daily and sat under the apostles' teaching, and then they went and they, they lived their lives together and they shared meals with one another and they sold their property and divvied it up to those who were in need. And, and it, the church was functioning at its best. It says that they were in good favor with all the people. Imagine that. The church, the Christians, being in good favor with all the people. When's the last time that was true of us in America? The Christians were in good standing. I mean, I'm to the point where I don't even want to call myself a Christian. I want to come up with a new word. But only one part, oh, by the way, the second, the last part it says is that as they were doing these things, God added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's the results of the church being the church. 
But if we don't understand that we've received the Holy Spirit and we get to live in that power, then we won't live like that as a church. And there's only one part of being the church that we tend to get really well, and it's sitting under the teaching. We're good at gathering. We're good at sitting. And there's always someone that's pretty decent at talking. But that's only one aspect of being the church. It's the other stuff that was winning people to Christ. It's the other stuff that that was seeing people come to know Christ day after day after day. It's the other stuff that was putting Christians in good favor in society. That when Christians spoke up, people listened. She's like, look, this is how these people live. They obviously got something that that I want to know where they're coming from. I want to understand why they live like that. And that curiosity led to understanding, and that understanding led to repentance, and that repentance led to eternal life. And that was happening day after day after day after day after day. And the evidence of that is the fact that we're sitting here today following, attempting to follow the same model. They took it seriously, or else we wouldn't have gotten the message. It would have died out and fizzled a long time ago. You have that message. We have that message as a church. We don't need to keep running back to an empty cistern that gives us no sustenance. We have eternal life. We just need to live like we have it. God, thank you that you redeem us from the pit. Thank you that you have lined up good works for us to do in your name, for your honor, and for your glory. Thank you that... uh, that each one of us here today has this amazing grace offered to us. And if we have received it, I pray that you convict us to live out of that truth, to find joy in the day today, to find joy in, in, in our circumstances, to find opportunities to love our neighbors, to want to know who you are more, to, to, to be in your word, to know the heart of God. And once we know the heart of God, it will lead to more, and re- more repentance and, and more turning from sin and more loving of our neighbors because we will know the heart of God more and we will find ourselves desiring to do good works not because we want to be recognized but because we know you love us and we want to return that love out to a world that so desperately needs it. God, if we're here today and we don't know you at this level, I pray that you would convict sin in this place now. You would reveal yourself to us. God, because we have way more to celebrate than we have to pity. We have way more affordable to us to celebrate and to to live in in that joy than to hang our heads low in defeat because you have defeated the ultimate enemy, death. You have conquered it, and we get to live in that. So I pray that you would reveal that hope to those in this room that need it right now. And that these angels, these angelic beings that you've created would rejoice at those in this room that are going to give their lives to you on this day. And as a church, we could gain favor with the people. And that day after day after day, you will add to our number those who are being saved. 